You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I finally made it to the Casadega Library. But as with everything and this place, they did not make it easy. It's a Tuesday night and the sun is setting. For my entire time here, I don't ever feel afraid or threatened when night falls near the ghost church. And I mean that. I mean, one of the first things I was told by Pastor Deb when I was planning my trip to Casadega was that there was this energy vortex in the area, a spirit vortex. It sounds a little scary, but all it means is that this is a place where contact with the dead is more possible than almost anywhere else in the country. Other areas that have vortexes include Arizona, New Mexico, the Midwest in many places, New England, and of course, upstate New York. Basically anywhere spiritualism popped off. The B. Ann Gaiman Memorial Library is on Stevens Street in Casadega, right by where I did my session with the Reverend Dr. Lewis Gates and the fairy trail where tourists leave those little trinkets and remembrances of themselves and their dead. Anne Gaiman herself was trained as a medium in Casadega, beginning as a teenager, and served as a medium to lobbyists and congresspeople in the D.C. area for decades. Make of that what you will. The library itself doubles as an educational building where classes take place and is another example of a property in Casadega that could definitely use a renovation. The lawn is a little bit barren, there's some detritus close to one of the exits, and there don't seem to be any lights on inside. On a street where most of the houses have soft lights from the interior telling you that at least someone is home, either making dinner or possibly helping someone connect with the dead mother they never got closure with. I cross the lawn and try one of the entrances. It's a lucky guess, and suddenly I'm standing in what appears to just look like someone's house with the lights off. There's a voice coming from down the hallway. It sounds like there's a man talking to himself, or actually the longer I listen, I realize he's talking to a dog. I call the number I was given for the librarian who works here and feel 
deeply paranoid. Because if I miscalculated this, there's virtually no other time to see whatever is going on in this building. The library is open exactly two hours per week, Tuesday night, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., and is run by someone who has what I feel is the most noble profession in the entire world, a volunteer librarian. As I'm trying to get my nerve up to follow this voice down the hall, a couple enters the building behind me. I've actually met the woman before at a class called Healing 101 at the Andrew Jackson Davis building around the corner. She had been excited to learn that I was a reporter. Did I want to read the children's book she self-published not too long ago? It's on Amazon. The two are also volunteer librarians here, I learn. She and her husband are Rhode Islanders who moved to Casadega sometime in the middle of the pandemic. They had retired. They were sick of mask mandates. Yet another common feeling here in Casadega that seems to go against the traditional assumed progressivism of the religion. She'd taken an interest in spiritualism and is training as a medium herself. So at this point, the couple had been involved at the camp intimately for months volunteering, taking classes, and attending services for the full year that it's necessary to before one can qualify to rent land from the camp to live on. As we've discussed in past episodes, becoming a medium at Casadega takes at least four years, and she'll have to find a mentor to approve and keep track of her training and volunteer hours, and seems to have found the person she's looking for via the librarian who as we get to the end of the hall, is there with a little wheezing dog. He asks, am I Jamie? I say yes and apologize for all the calls. I'm just worried that I'll miss it when there's so few hours available. He's a total sweetheart, a man in his 70s with this low musical voice named Richard Russell. It is recognized that everything in the universe is energy and vibration. As an extension of that knowledge, we in accord our energy and are affected by the vibrations around us. He's been at Casadega for 25 years and the library is sort of his side project, you could say. He tells me it started in 2017 with a donation of 1,800 books from Anne Gaiman herself and has since ballooned to a collection of over 6,000 books and texts. Every Tuesday, he and a few volunteers continue the work of organizing the titles into an infinity Google spreadsheet. 6,000 volumes is pretty impressive. But what I'm most curious about on this night is what kind of texts we're talking. For the most part, I find the same history is reported over and over, over a century of spiritualists working out their ideas, working out their infighting, some texts that reference more Eastern religion, self-help idealism, American individualism, it's a fascinating collection, but it feels like there's a lot missing. So over the next two weeks, we're going to take a look at the corners of spiritualism that are even less discussed than the religion itself. We'll take a look at the cultures that spiritualism appropriates in order to distance itself from traditional Christianity, how a supposedly progressive religion managed to lose the vast majority of their Black American believers and the offshoot of spiritualism that enmeshed with the beliefs of enslaved people who had been moved to imperial land and created a religious movement that is far more popular and practiced than spiritualism in America itself. 
Let's create a corner of the library that doesn't exist. Meet me at the energy vortex down at Seneca Pond. Wait, who's Seneca? Wait, let's do the theme song first. So Richard shows me into this library that's being organized as a volunteer project by medium slash librarians. Some of the materials are primary sources and pamphlets that have been hanging around the camp semi-organized for decades, and other texts were inherited by retired or passed into spirit mediums, still to be arranged and determined what their use in the camp might be. The two rooms that compose the library have these low ceilings and are lit with fluorescent lights. Most of the shelves are full, others are semi-organized. Arranged categories so far include biographies of mediums, metaphysical topics, women's books, self-help books. I can't account for this, but there's a pile of books on the ground that seem to have to do with the history of Nazis between the late 1920s and World War II. It's not pro-Nazi rhetoric, but I don't understand why it's there. Richard is kind of talking me through these categories as he walks me around. He says, We try to be inclusive. But he gestures around a little helplessly before earnestly begging me to please put books back where I found them. They don't have the infrastructure to organize them again. He says, Our system is not the best, and if we get books out of whack... He trails off, just completely overwhelmed by the idea of books out of whack, and he leaves me to it. So where to start? I'm trying not to, like, trip over the random stacks of books and paper that have yet to be categorized and decide that I'll try and start by seeking out something I've been looking for since I got here. Any record or context for the spiritualist's preoccupation with generalized indigenous history. But for all the books that I can find... Just a sampling of titles. They've got a copy of Women Who Love Too Much. They've got shelves dedicated to natural law and angels and aura color and astral projection. And even a copy of that book by Dr. Phil that everybody's auntie has, that book called Self Matters. Why do they have that? What there's none of is anything that concerns spiritual practices outside of American spiritualism or questions what cultural influences they took in order to build their own religion. In the several volumes that exist on Casadega's history, one story always features prominently, the Casadega founding story. I find it in a number of titles throughout the library, and it's been repeated pretty often online as well. And I think it's high time that we take a closer look at it on Ghost Church. That's the show you're listening to, by the way.
Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The myth goes a little bit like this. The Fox sisters, who had first heard the spirit rappings in Hydesville, New York in 1848 as kids, were dead and gone by the mid-1890s. After decades of prosperity, struggle, destitution, and establishing themselves as some of the premier female religious leaders of their time, while the sisters Maggie and Kate Fox in particular died in relative poverty and obscurity, the legacy they left behind was enormous. Spiritualism had managed to cross lines of nationality, of gender, of race, of class. It now belonged to the whole world, and communities were forming to continue the observance and development of this Christian-influenced religion with no heaven or hell that emphasized spirit communication, and mediumship. Enter George Colby, born just weeks before the Fox sisters made a splash in upstate New York. Colby grew up in Pike, New York, an hour outside of Rochester, before the family moved to Minnesota and Colby developed an interest in spiritualism as a teenager, beginning to work as a medium in the 1860s and formally leaving his Baptist upbringing in 1867 after the conclusion of the Civil War. Legend has it that one of the main messages Colby received during this time was that it was his destiny to start a spiritualist camp in the U.S. But uh, with all due respect, George Colby said a lot of things, 
and so did his primary spirit guide, an indigenous man named Seneca. Which, uh, we've been beating around the bush on Seneca long enough. I've mentioned before that Seneca is a prominent name here at the Casadega camp. One of the main parks, that one I was telling you about with the energy vortex, is named for Seneca. And another meditation garden refers to Native American spiritual practices in this very Anglo-centric, vagified way. It's called Medicine Wheel Park, right around the corner from the library. The camp's relationship to indigenous culture is, at best, dissonant and bizarre. The majority white religion is sprinkled with references to indigenous people and culture, but without any specificity or acknowledgement of the specific tribes whose land they are living and worshiping on. Instead, you'll often find them leaning into popular tropes around indigenous people as a monoculture with unified spiritual practices, characterizing more indigenous spirit guides acting in the interest of the white religion than actual people who had lived and died and had their land taken from them. So, to begin, I want to present the story of George Colby and his spirit guide Seneca's journey to Casadega, with some annotations. Look, I'm down to respect a religious legend just as much as the next girl is. But this one is regularly presented as fact in and outside of spiritualist circles while failing to acknowledge, with all due respect, actual facts, actual people, and actual human atrocities that made it possible for Casadega to exist in the first place. So, okay, George and Seneca, let's see what's going on. It's 1875, and the 20-something George Colby is living in Wisconsin, making his living as a medium, frequently flanked by his spirit guide, Seneca. Seneca's name is the first reference to Native American culture that rings a little weird. The Seneca were and are an indigenous tribe, not one guy, who live in upstate New York. This is very likely something George Colby would have known from his childhood. However, Seneca, his spirit guide, leaned heavily into what is now commonly referred to in media as the magical Native American trope, defined as stating that their power comes from innate spirituality or closeness to nature that civilized races don't have, usually involves influence over nature or animals or other spirit powers. Quite often, the native in question will be dressed very traditionally, even in modern setting. But the Seneca people have a unique and relevant history that took place adjacent to George Colby's life. Colby likely learned the term in his hometown of Pike, New York, where the Seneca tribe had lived. Pike was a town that was only incorporated by colonizers 30 years before Colby was born. Most significantly, Casadega is a Seneca word, one that means water beneath the rocks, originally named for Casadega Lake in the area now known as the Lilydale Spiritual Association, or Casadega's sister camp. As of the late 2000s, the Seneca language was considered to be endangered, with less than 50 remaining speakers, a clear and direct result of colonizers' often government-enabled methods of forced relocation, forced cultural assimilation, and ethnic cleansing. Here's a clip of what the Seneca language does sound like, 
from a recent Seneca language audio newsletter on how to say grandfathers and uncles. Ungwasod so'o haksod itinotse so'o haknotse isne aho'o. Today, around 8,000 Seneca are enrolled in the Seneca Nation of Indians, who refer to themselves as, quote, the keepers of the Western door. I'll link to some resources where you can learn more in the description of this episode. Unfortunately for George Colby's credibility, I promise I'm being sarcastic there, his spirit guide Seneca and the Seneca people had very little in common. As presented in the spiritualist legend, the spirit guide Seneca primarily served as a conduit by which George Colby was able to justify moving to Florida from Wisconsin. There he would acquire the plot of land where the Southern Casadega Spiritualist Association would be located beginning in the 1890s. After meeting another medium in Wisconsin in 1875, Colby said that Seneca guided the two of them down to the Jacksonville area by railroad. Seneca was seeking out a very specific plot of land. They arrived at the end of the railroad line, but Seneca instructed them to continue on foot, seeking out land described by the most current Casadega history book available called Casadega, the South's oldest spiritual community, as, quote, a great spiritual center where thousands of believers could congregate, a promised land of lakes and high bluffs. Behold, the land where Casadega exists now. The legend continues. Having satisfied Seneca, Colby filed a homestead grant in 1880, an act that was passed by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War in 1862 that gave three plots of land of around 160 acres to applicants, the vast, vast majority of whom were white people. Except, wait, who did those acres belong to originally? Casadega was made possible with a land grant that was intentionally redistributing indigenous land to white people, made plausible in Florida after the U.S. had acquired, heavy air quotes used there, the land from fellow colonizers Spain back in 1819. Soon after, inhumane policies like the 1830 Indian Removal Act forcibly relocated many Cherokees, Creeks, and other people indigenous to the eastern U.S. They were forced to go to the west of the Mississippi River to make room for more white colonizers. This led to the Trail of Tears, a brutal, government-sanctioned ethnic cleansing carried out between 1830 and 1850 that demanded that over 100,000 indigenous people relocate, with some historians estimating as many as 15,000 people died on the way in unlivable conditions. Add this to the fallout of the Seminole Wars, there is no doubt that Casadega would not have been possible without the exploitation of indigenous people whose religion and culture were being criminalized and erased, while movements like spiritualism were given the space, both culturally and literally, to evolve and thrive. While the abolitionist politics of most early spiritualists were emphasized, there is not much to indicate that the religion had meaningful solidarity with indigenous people during these periods of massive violence. Another conflict that was very relevant to this area was the Seminole Wars, 
a still undertaught series of three wars between the Seminole tribe in Florida and white colonialists. The first war went from 1817 to 18, the second from 1835 to 42, and the third and final Seminole War went from 1855 to 58, just under a quarter century before George Colby was said to have shown up with his spirit guide Seneca. The latter two wars relate to Casadega directly. The Second Seminole War had erupted over the Indian Removal Act. Many Seminoles refused to vacate to Oklahoma when it was demanded by the U.S. military and were effectively using guerrilla war tactics before U.S. generals began to play extremely dirty, doing things like abducting Seminole leaders under the guise of proposed treaties. The Third Seminole War was intended by the U.S. military to remove or murder the remaining Seminole from Florida, those who had survived the first two conflicts. The plan was to burn their plantations and starve them until they agreed to relocate. Although it's said that between 200 and 500 Seminole people moved deep into the Everglades instead of abandoning their land. In 1884, Colby was granted 145 acres of land, central Floridian land that had previously been the home of tribes like the Muscogo, a group of majority Black Seminoles who had faced extreme marginalization for their skin color and their status as indigenous in both the U.S. and in Mexico. Their history is a fascinating one, a result of the Seminole tribe of Florida welcoming escaped slaves and being open to blending their cultures and customs during the years that Florida was under the control of Spain. Escaped slaves could live freely here, and this resulted in a strong allyship between the cultures, formed prior to the colonial musical chairs between Spain and the U.S., the land that belonged to neither of them in the first place, followed by the Indian Removal Act of 1830 by President Andrew Jackson, who, it must be said, is one of history's greatest pieces of shit from any country at any time. It should be mentioned, though, the Muscogo were forced out of the area during the Trail of Tears years. Seminole leaders did have black slaves, and often black Seminole slaves, when Seminole leaders changed their policies to endorse chattel slavery during the Second Seminole War to better align themselves with the practices of the Creek tribe. This shift and enslavement led to many Muscogo retreating to Mexico, where some of their descendants continue to live today. The relationships between the cultures was certainly not frictionless, but both were being aggressively exploited and abused by the colonizers. An interesting factor between Seminoles and Black Seminoles, descendants of this blended culture, was an evolving spiritual tradition. Most escaped slaves practiced some form of Christianity during the 19th century, leading to Christian elements being blended into Seminole spiritual traditions. Sound familiar? Another tribe in central Florida was the Mikosuke, who had lived in southern Georgia and northern Florida before being forcibly relocated to the Everglades during the Indian Removal Act, at which point most allied with the Seminole. I can't stress this enough and will be addressing it throughout this episode. There is no indigenous American monoculture. Every group 
has their own spiritual traditions, has their own ideas, has their own practices. And so this allyship came with a lot of cultural adjustment for both groups. Mikosuke is the Englishization of the word Mikosuke, a Mixtec Zok word from Mexico that means leader of the civilized people. Many Mikosuke fought in the Seminole Wars, only to be displaced and targeted by the U.S. government again during the years of the Trail of Tears. After refusing to have their culture considered as one and the same as the Seminole's culture by the U.S., the allyship between the Seminole and the Mikosuke soured, and the Mikosuke tribe is currently represented mainly in southern Florida, where their tribal dialect remains endangered with only about 500 speakers remaining. Here is a Mikosuke school teacher and tribe member named William Popeye Osceola talking about how he tries to preserve the language and culture of the Mikosuke in the classroom in an interview with the Creative Lab at McClatchy. When you go to school in America, you learn all about American history, but a big part of American history that gets left out is Native history. So I always look back to what was missing in my education. This generation is like heads and shoulders above my group. The future they have and where they're going to take this tribe, I can't wait to see. We want them to be empowered. We want them to come back. We want them to help take over. and They can run this, and then we can also follow their leadership. Their unique religious beliefs include the idea that men are transformed into angels after an attempt to visit the quote-unquote great spirit. Finally, the Tamukua tribe was represented in the Casadega region, a tribe that was all but wiped out by 1800, with a population that is said to have once included as many as 200,000 people. Their spiritual traditions included community shamans that were able to contact the spirit realm, with powers that ranged from the belief that they controlled the weather to sometimes serving as herbalists that used natural remedies to ease the pain of childbirth. This culture was destroyed by colonial violence and illness, with the remainder of the Tamukua ingratiating into the Seminole and many others taken to Cuba. But it's important to note, the majority of what's known about their history, and it's not that much, are still taken from the records of European colonizers. Not that the legend of Casadega references, well, virtually any of these people or any of the history of the land they're using, it is possible that I missed references to indigenous culture during my time at Casadega that was more specific, particularly at a library where I was only entitled to two hours of time. But any reference to any specific native group is extremely hard to come by, unless you're sharp enough to know what Seminole Street is referencing in the unincorporated community where crystal shops sell their wares to tourists. If you're lucky, maybe you'll find one of those tourist dream catchers that are emblematic of the ways in which modern Americans erase the cultures of what was once around 600 unique tribes whose land was stolen and then formed into this monocultural image by colonizers. If Seneca the Spirit Guide had any interest in this history, these lost lives and stolen land of the tribes in Central Florida, I've never seen any reference to it. Per the legend of Casadega's founding, Seneca only seemed to have a vested interest in being George Colby's sidekick, not just giving him permission to found Casadega, but as the legend goes, 
It was his idea. The fallout of all of these conflicts, the Trail of Tears, the Indian Removal Act, the Seminole Wars, had turned Florida into an area that was under constant change throughout the 19th century. Due to the massive loss of life that took place during the Seminole War years, by 1860, the census indicated that only about 1,200 people were living in Volusia County, where Casadega still is now, and that very little activity took place there throughout the Civil War years. According to Casadega, the South's oldest spiritualist community, Volusia County was more popular during these years as a place to hide from conscription into the Confederate Army, only beginning to be developed by colonizers in the 1870s when your George Colby's began to show up. White industrialists began working on areas that bear their names to this day. An Ohio entrepreneur named Matthias Day incorporated Daytona, Florida in 1876. And Henry Addison DeLand founded the community that still bears his last name around this same time. By the 1890 census, the population of the area had increased to around 8,500 people, bolstered by the end of the Civil War and expanding train accessibility in the central Florida area. In 1893, the land that Colby had acquired via the Homestead Act, stealing indigenous land, was now accessible and was developed to make it accessible to the people he wanted to court. Majority white spiritualists from upstate New York looking for a place to worship when it got too cold at the camps in the north. So this legend is present everywhere in the library. I feel a little weird poking so many holes in it out of respect to the spiritualists, but for a religion that constantly references indigenous culture and seems to have a vested interest in the illusion of paying respect, it sounds like a bunch of colonial freeform jazz by a guy who just wanted to set up a religious camp in a colonial culture that was and should have been grappling with their relation to Native American culture. From this vantage point, Seneca can be seen either as a well-intentioned attempt to incorporate Native culture into spiritualism, or, as it's been suggested, this weird and offensive caricature that absolved a white landowner of the guilt of thinking anyone could truly own land that has been stolen with violence and cruelty quite recently. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. 
Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I was lucky enough to speak with the amazing Olivia Woodward about this legend, the precise reasons that it crosses from the weird into the harmful and the conversation that surrounds indigenous culture in the United States to this day, this gelatinous monoculture and the erasure of all these traditions, histories, and stories that are unique to around 600 tribes that exist or existed across the mainland U.S. for centuries. Olivia writes about movies, media, and native issues, and has previously appeared on my movie podcast with Caitlin Durante, The Bechtel Cast. I'm so thrilled I got to talk with her, and here's a little bit of our conversation. All right. Well, Kumbakia, my name is Olivia Woodward. I am a citizen of the Caddo Nation. Um, I'm also a writer for a tribe called Geek, and currently my day job is working in tourism. So I was actually first raised pagan. I have never followed Christianity. I've never never been a part of that. My, my parents, I'm the youngest of three. And so by the time I was born, I think they experimented, <laughs> experimented with Christianity with my siblings. Uh, but by the time I was born, my mom, my mom and dad were like, no, paganism makes sense to us. We're going to do that. Then when I was about nine years old, my mother started reconnecting with her native identity. And that's uh, we first started with the Caddo Nation. Um, and yeah, so since I was nine years old, uh, that's when I was introduced to our kind of Caddo spirituality and uh, as an adult, unfortunately, modern day paganism does appropriate a lot from data spirituality, but they have a lot of the same principles and tenets. So I still, in my adulthood, kind of combine the two of them. In general, though, uh, Caddo's do believe in creator. Creator is a genderless being that created everything. So before we started discussing a story that George Colby told about indigenous people, I was curious about the spiritual origins of Olivia's people, the Caddo. I think a fun place to start, if you don't mind, is if mm -hmm. I kind of share our creation story. Um, every nation that. has a creation story. They're all pretty different from each other. There is a through line uh, among all of them. There is some commonality, but we all are different. So the Caddo's creation story It is believed that a very long time ago, um, humans and animals lived under the earth, like within the earth, and they lived there for forever. Then one day their leader, whose name translates to moon, received a message from creator. Um, and through that message, discovered a tunnel that led up 
Uh, so they followed the tunnel and realized it led to a cave, which led to a different realm, essentially. So with this message from creator, Moon gathered his people and the animals and led them out of the cave. However, creator told Moon to not look back. You're moving forward. Don't look back. So they get mm-hmm. almost all the way out of the cave. And it's also said that Moon is carrying, I believe, drum and tobacco. And his wife is carrying corn, pumpkin, something else. I can't remember right now. Uh, they're carrying these things, though, that are essentially the foundation, too, for the Caddos. Um, and they get almost ha- like almost all the way out. And Wolf gets too curious and turns around and looks back. And that's when the cave collapses. And half of the people and half the animals are left behind. And the other half make it to Earth, the other realm. And they cry and cry and cry. And that's what formed the Mississippi River. Um, and also that's where the Caddos uh, eventually made their land and their home. And I think what's interesting to note about our creation story and a lot of indigenous creation stories is that we are of the Earth. We come from the Earth, which to me um, indicates our, that we have a relationship. We're guests on the earth. And so we have to maintain a relationship with the earth. So mm-hmm. with that in mind too, that also means we see a lot of animals as relatives as well. That's not an exaggeration. That's not like spiritual. That, that is a big belief is that we have a relationship with the animals. So mm-hmm. a way we do that, way we honor the animals is through dance. A lot of your spirituality is kind of through your everyday things as well. So it's a a big part of it is being aware of what's around you and being appreciative of what's around you and also Mm -hmm. helping out when it makes sense as well. Well, I'll probably give more context to this later. A lot of our practices and our understandings have been lost on purpose by outside forces. So Mm -hmm. this might not be like a super fun answer, so right now, from my understanding, I was not raised in the Cabo Nation to believe in really an afterlife. Because we are of the earth, once we die, we return to the earth. Um, and that's kind of where it stops. Now, mm-hmm. I have done some research, and I believe before colonization, there was a whole different subset of beliefs when it came to that. But wow. because so much of it has been lost, uh, that's kind of where it stands now. So a difficulty I had in interacting with white mediums around the ideas of indigenous culture, as well as looking at past writings of Casadega mediums, was that the way that they were presenting indigenous culture was too vague and self-serving to be the kind of show of respect that it was said to be. Olivia breaks down her frustration on this issue brilliantly here. I think in general, uh, a question I start pushing on people who who believe in things like that is um, specifically, I'll ask like, well, what nation do you think that's from? Like, what what tribe are you referencing? And I do that because we tend to get like all put in the same group. And just to put it out there right now, there is no Native American religion. There are over 500 nations across the continental United States. We can't Mm -hmm. all, it, it doesn't make sense for all of us to have the same religion. Now there is a Native American church in Oklahoma that I believe is still functioning, but that is a result of uh, laws imposed by the U.S. government that criminalized our religion. So we had to go underground and build these churches to continue to, as a facade to practice some of our Native religion. 
Um, but yeah, in general, whenever I come across people who think like that, I will just push them and ask, well, which nation are you pulling that from? Which tribe are you pulling that from? And they'll get frustrated, double down on whatever, but that's the only way I can see to combat it. But it's, mm. it's frustrating. It's very frustrating because they do see us as all one entity. We all believe the same things. We all have the same uh, practices, um, like especially, and, and also too, I will say, some native people will follow to this because we have been purposely disconnected from our religion and our identity. For instance, right. I know a lot of natives who have dream catchers and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but dream catchers are not from my tribe. They were not created out of the Southeastern tribes. They were created from the Northeastern, the Canadian tribes. I want to say the Ojibwe or Anishinaabe, they created dream catchers <laughs> as a way to help their children not be so scared of colonists, which I don't think a lot of people understand that. Like whenever colonists started invading the nations and murdering them, a lot of children were having nightmares. So elders created these dream catchers to help them capture their nightmares. And so that's the other frustrating part too, is that they will take one thing and literally when I say take, I do mean literally they take it they redo the definition, give no recognition to where they took it from, and then oftentimes profit off of it. So that's, that's the other really frustrating thing is that not only do they just see us as one entity, um, they don't even want to recognize the beautiful differences between all of us. It's, it's really frustrating when non-natives and oftentimes only white people say, well, we're doing this to honor you. We're doing this to honor you. But you don't, you have to let the people tell you how they want to be honored. And so if, you, if it's out of ignorance, understand that's understanding. But whenever you're presented the opportunity to learn about that nation, so many non-natives will just double down because they're embarrassed or because they don't like being wrong. They will double down on what they are doing and saying, no, we do this because we're honoring you. And we, have, we come back and say, well, this is not honoring us. So this is just for you then. And I think that's where a lot of disconnect comes from, is that these other cultures, religions, people don't want to accept when they're wrong. This all begs the question, what are the issues that spiritualists could and should be acknowledging to actually meaningfully move the needle on how Native culture is viewed where they currently live on Seminole land in Florida? I asked Olivia, and she shared a few pieces of history in particular to be aware of. That's why I feel it's really important to give the context as to why so many of us have this quote unquote attitude in regards to white people, non-natives appropriating our culture and like where that frustration, that deep-seated frustration comes from. So sure. um, first I'd like to talk about the establishment of boarding schools. Um, boarding mm-hmm. schools began in the United States and in Canada, but in the United States around 1860 and they were government funded but oftentimes run by Christian and Catholic churches. The motto of the founder of these schools, General Richard Henry Pratt, he thought he was a righteous man and he could, quote unquote, see the humanity in the savages. So the goal of these schools was to kill the Indian, save the man. That was the literal motto of the school. They did that by taking children from families and forcing them to be Christian, uh, taking away their native names, punishing them when they spoke their language, cutting their hair, and making them dress like white people, 
and essentially trying to assimilate them into the white culture. So that's mm-hmm. happening in the 1860s. Um, there are technically still residential schools now, but they're, they function very differently now. There, there's not as much like religious trauma involved now. But um, as far as this, this model, I think, I don't have the exact date on me right now, but I think they were eliminated the 70s, maybe even the 90s. So like 1990s. <laughs> so the yes. have been around for a really long time. Then in 1883, the Code of Indian Offenses was passed by the Department of Interior. And these codes were only applied to Native Americans. And these codes, in summary, criminalized our religion. Um, if you were, because also at this point in 1883, a lot of the Native nations have been forced onto reservations. Um, so either you were, you were forced on a reservation, uh, taken away from your food resources, and because our, our religion and relationship is tied so closely to the earth, they were being forced away from their land that was so connected to their religion. Um, so they were forced onto these reservations. Their children were being taken away from them. And now the government has said, if you are caught practicing your dances and your ceremony, you will either be imprisoned or we will withhold food from you for a month. And that's important because these nations were forced onto reservations because they were their land was essentially stolen from them. The government said, well, in return, we will provide your resources from you since we are taking since you're being pushed away from your resources. So it was a big mm-hmm. deal. Aside from imprisonment, you wouldn't get food if you were caught practicing your religion. And then if any um, religious leaders were caught, they were automatically sent to prison for like 10 days or longer. Not to like date my mother, but she was born in 1964, right? Mm -hmm. So even as a child, she legally wasn't allowed to do, even even if she was raised with our native religion, which because of everything I have listed, she wasn't. But even if she was, she wouldn't be allowed to do a lot of the practices we wanted to do. To me, that's also important because it's a big reason why my mom raised me pagan for the first nine years of my life. And then we were able to switch to or transition a little bit to our native religion. Like because of these laws, my grandmother wasn't raised with her religion. So how could she raise my mom with her religion? So that's why all this is important. Everyone likes to act like this happened so long ago and that natives are complaining for no reason, but we're not. (laughs) Like these laws were still in practice when my grandma was alive. Like this wasn't that long ago. So Olivia was not aware that the majority white religion of American spiritualism was appropriating from indigenous culture without really any accurate information prior to listening to Ghost Church to prepare for this interview. But she was not surprised. I, you know, before I listened to the series, I didn't know that they were using native natives as their avatar, essentially. Uh, sure. And that is a very weird feeling, especially because during the time of, I feel like spiritualism reaching its popularity, natives were fighting for their fucking lives to just exist. And knowing that these people were starting to use us to give them strength, but not, but not supporting us in any material way is uh, disappointing. <laughs> so what does Olivia make of the story of George and Spirit Seneca? 
Okay, so this is my genuine like first time hearing the story. I purposely didn't look it up so that I could have a more genuine reaction. Um, so, God, a lot of thoughts. Um, why would a native spirit guide tell you to go own land for your benefit rather than tell you to go help the natives get their land back? That makes no sense. That makes absolutely no sense. I think the other frustration is um, a lot of this just feels like they are using us as a way to mask their greediness, to be frank. So that's how I feel about all that. I think it's funny. <laughs> Does that quite make sense to me? Does it really align with any native spirituality like at all? Um, and really just using us as a reason to say it's okay that we own this land. I hope that a big takeaway people will have from this is that it's okay to be curious and it's okay to want to participate, but you have to let us lead and you have to let us do it. And also for reconnecting natives, it's okay that you are not actively participating in your nation's religion. It's not your fault. Um, we've had laws in place for over a century to prevent us and honestly, on a darker side, we've had a lot of laws try to humanely genocide us. And we are still here and you are still valid for uh, being here. Like the fact that you're here is a miracle. Um, so yeah, I think those are probably my, my parting words. Thank you so much to Olivia Woodward again. And I'll be linking to some of her work in the description. And I want to say personally, I mean, look, most of this history of the Casadega area was not known to me prior to working on this episode. And most Native history remains untaught, unacknowledged, and unpreserved in American schools. Characters like Seneca the Spirit Guide really don't serve to do much more than to perpetuate existing stereotypes and attempt to fill this void of non-history. So by 1893... Seneca the Spirit Guide and George Colby decide, hey, it's time to get this camp up and running. To do so, he enlisted the help of two women who had been responsible for a considerable amount of success at the Lilydale Assembly, the camp that was originally called Casadega in upstate New York. This is the camp where the Central Floridian Spiritualists would borrow its name. The best information isn't always contained in the library. The beliefs of the spiritualists are fascinating and widely applicable, but there are areas of their own history that are completely forgotten or obscured among the few left practicing in their major hubs. This is done in the expected way, by pushing already marginalized communities to the side and replacing areas of their own histories with versions that make them less uncomfortable. And that's where I'll leave you this week. As Casadega continued to build on its own legacy on its House of Cards origin story. Next week, we're going to learn about Espiritismo, which uses spiritism as its foundation, and how many Black spiritualists grew disillusioned with spiritualism and flocked instead to independently run spiritual churches. That's next week on Ghost Church. Ghost Church is a Cool Zone Media production created, written, and hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. The show is produced by Sophie Lichterman, edited by Ian Johnson. Our theme song is by Speedy Ortiz, that's Sadie Dupuy, 
Andy Moholt, Audrey Z. Whitesides, and Joey Dubeck. And music is by Zoe Blade. Special thanks to Olivia Woodward for speaking with me for this episode. Please check out her work. It's linked in the description. Special shout out to Ian Johnson and Sophie Lichterman, Ghost Church Cannon, for lending their voices to this episode. And I really tried my best with pronunciation on this. I, in my defense, I did grow up in a region where the worst accent on the planet exists. Um, so I, I am open to corrections. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. Right, let's go. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. <laughs> you can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Oh, oh, oh. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.